Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Neo Rewind podcast on war and violence. My name is Anne van Maurik and today I speak with Marlene Schevers, who is Assistant Professor in Cultural Anthropology at Utrecht University. And in December 2022, Marlene's book got published, which goes by the title uh, Voices That Matter, Kurdish Women and the Limits of Representation in Contemporary Turkey. And the book is published by the University of Chicago Press. Marlene, it's wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, can you please uh, introduce yourself? Yes, sure. So, as you mentioned, my name is Marlene Schiffers. Um, I am an assistant professor in cultural anthropology at Utrecht University. And this is my second year at the University of Utrecht. So I still feel relatively new to the Netherlands. Uh, previously, I was in Belgium uh, for a postdoc, and I also had a postdoc in the UK, which is also where I did my PhD. I have a background mostly in anthropology, but also did history as an undergraduate. Yeah. Thank you. So about this book, tell us, where is it about? Yes, so the book, it's an ethnography um, as an anthropologist. I wrote an ethnography uh, of Kurdish women's voices in contemporary Turkey. And I look specifically at the voices of Kurdish singers and singer poets. And so um, the kind of the point of beginning is that in Turkey, um, what we see is that there's this sort of narrative that Kurdish women are um, somehow silenced, that they are lacking a voice because they're women, but also because they're Kurds. So they're part of a, a minority, an ethnic minority that has historically been denied and oppressed. And so this idea is that Kurdish women, um, if they raise their voices, that this is a sign of resistance, of empowerment, even of healing, talking when women talk about their pain, their suffering, also in relation to the war um, that has ravaged um, the eastern part of Turkey for decades. You know, there's this idea that when you raise, when these women raise their voices, that this is healing, empowering. And I think this is a discourse that we encounter not only in Kurdistan or in Turkey or in the Middle East, but it's something that I think we're all very familiar with in the sense that um, we often hear this refrain of, you know, raise your voice, people need to gain their voices. Um, we're being told all the time to be vocal, to speak up, to yeah. voice our opinions, our suffering, our pain, uh, our emotions. And so one aim of the book is to really critically examine this discourse around the voice and this politics around the voice. Um, in which we're sort of continually encouraged to raise our voices. And what I hope to show with the book is that when, um, when people raise their voices, particularly marginalized subjects, that this is not actually a straightforward path to liberation or empowerment, but that it creates a whole range of new vulnerabilities, anxieties, and also contestations and conflict. And so what I want to do with the book is to move away from this very familiar narrative we have about how Muslim women are silenced and they need to be given a voice, and really instead develop a framework where we look um, at the effects of what happens when voices actually resound, when people actually use their voices. And so, you know, I want to look at, rather than sort of telling the story of Kurdish women finally raising their voices, emerging from silence, um, what I want to do is really look at, you know, how do these women use their voices and how um, has the meaning that's attached to the voice changed over time and, and what are the effects of this? So this is really the aim of the book. Thank you for this, Marlene. Uh, 
perhaps it's good to, before before we go further with this this idea of empowerment. Perhaps it's good to give us some historical context first about the situation of Kurdish people uh, and more specifically women in Turkey. Uh, what's the history behind the fact that Kurdish voices attract suspicion? Yes. Yeah, so the Kurds, um, very broadly speaking, are an indigenous people of the of the Middle East. Um, and their homeland, uh, Kurdistan, um, is currently divided, or we could even say occupied, by four different nation states. So um, historically, Kurdistan um, is, the historical Kurdistan is currently divided between Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And so among those four countries, Turkey has the largest Kurdish population, such that roughly 15 to 20% of Turkey's population is estimated to be Kurdish, which amounts probably to somewhere around 15 million people. Um, Kurds in total are estimated to be around 40 million. So it's a big people, often also said it's uh, the biggest nation without a state. So um, there's no um, Kurdish nation state. Um, and in Turkey, ever since the Turkish Republic was established in 1923, um, Kurdish culture, language, um, Kurdish politics have been quite brutally and quite rigorously repressed. So for most of the 20th century in Turkey, the Kurdish language was banned, Kurdish existence was denied. Um, the terms, even the terms Kurd, Kurdish or Kurdistan were officially banned. You were not allowed to use them. Um, Kurds were sometimes called mountain Turks um, and they were said to be originally Turks, but they had forgotten their Turkish language and they had kind of taken on this false consciousness of being Kurdish and that they had to be re-educated to discover their Turkishness. It was also illegal to give your children Kurdish names. Kurdish folk songs were forbidden or they could only be performed with Turkish lyrics. So, you know, there was this sort of massive campaign of repressing and denying Kurdish difference and also to assimilate Kurdish populations. So speaking in Turkish has been encouraged. Turkishness is sort of, you know, the main... Um, aspirational goal uh, in Turkey. And so in this context where there's been all this repression um, of Kurdish cultural language and identity, the Kurdish voice has um, become this object of suspicion, as I call it in the book, in the sense that it's often perceived as indicating sort of a lack of loyalty to the Turkish Republic, to the Turkish state. So speaking or singing in Kurdish, it's often immediately connected with ideas about, you know, being a bad citizen or being not a loyal citizen. And, um, you know, this has very concrete and very harsh consequences in the, in the sense that countless Kurdish musicians, artists, writers have been and continue to be imprisoned for publishing in Kurdish, singing in Kurdish, speaking in Kurdish. And just to give you an example, one of the women that I worked with, um, one of my main interlocutors, who was a mother of five, middle-aged, um, and a singer of Kurdish traditional repertoires, when I was doing my fieldwork, she had two court cases running against her for singing in Kurdish, which was considered to be a sign of separatism. And she was potentially facing years of imprisonment as you know, an elderly woman. Um, eventually the cases were dropped, but, um, you know, she was in some sense lucky and there are many people who are being imprisoned um, on the grounds that they speak or sing in Kurdish. Um, and so there's this whole, you know, sort of political restriction on Kurdish voices in Turkey, but there's also gendered specific restrictions that women in particular face. And that comes more from within um, Kurdish families and communities where 
It's often considered immodest or shameful for women to raise their voices in public, especially to sing in public. Um, and that means that almost all of the women that I worked with, uh, many of them were sort of middle-aged to elderly, coming often from rural backgrounds, quite conservative, not all of them, um, but they had often encountered very severe opposition from their families for wanting to sing. Um, and that included at times physical violence um, or just in general social kind of opposition. And so, you know, I guess, so there's this very, you know, strong gendered and political kind of repression of, of Kurdish women's voices. And nevertheless, the women that I worked with, they displayed this remarkable perseverance. So they stubbornly sort of insisted on raising their voices, despite all these really harsh consequences. Um, and so what the book tries to understand is really, where does this insistence come from and what effects does it have? Mm, yeah, wow, thank you. Yeah, you just explained how in Turkey there's a current repression of Kurdish identity and how voices are actually, well, in a way silenced, uh, and especially marginalized voices. And uh, you, in, in the book, you also write that Kurdish voices gain increasing moral and political value as uh, metaphors of representation and resistance, as you also just mentioned. Can you please elaborate a bit more on this? How does this work? Yes, um, so, so far I've kind of told you the story of repression and silencing, but actually if you look at the history, what happened that since roughly the early 2000s, um, this politics of repression, silencing and denial has shifted quite significantly um, to a new form of, well, very ambiguous, but we could say pluralist tolerance vis-a-vis um, -vis cultural and linguistic minorities in Turkey. And this has partly to do with the fact that um, Turkey became an official um, accession country to the EU in 1999. And therefore, you know, there were all kinds of demands regarding political and civil uh, rights and liberties that um, Turkey had to guarantee. Um, and so a lot of legal change happened in that regard. But it also has to do with the rise of the AKP, which is the Justice and Development Party, the party that's still in power in Turkey today. And um, despite the current really authoritarian turn that Turkey has taken under the AKP, in the early years, actually, uh, the party really set out to kind of pluralize the country, which is related also to its own push against, as a, a pronounced, pronounced Islamic party, they were really pushing against the politics of the old, secular, established Kemalist elites, which had been the same elites that were, you know, insisting on the Turkification of the country for decades. And, um, and so as part of this, um, you know, we experienced this um, immense uh, flourishing of civil society, this opening up of, um, of a space of civil liberties, a new public celebration of, you know, Turkey's multicultural um, makeup. And of course, you know, it's important to highlight that a lot of this has changed. So this was really in the early years, in the um, 2010s, of the AKP um, government. And, and now we obviously are in a, in a position where a lot of political opposition is quite ruthlessly crushed. But it led to a new regime of audibility, in a sense, for Kurdish voices, but also other voices of other minorities. So you have um, not just Kurds, but also Armenians, Greeks, Jews, Alevis, Laz, Arabs, you know, lots of different communities. And they, um, they became more visible and more audible in public as a result of this. Um, and so what I argue in the book is that um, this also gave these voices 
Kurdish voices, but also other voices, new forms of value. So suddenly, for instance, Kurdish voices um, could be sold as music albums. The, the ban on Kurdish language was lifted and you could market Kurdish voices, also as symbols of Kurdish cultural heritage, as symbols of authentic Kurdish tradition. Um, all kinds of books were printed with, in a way, Kurdish voices in them. Kurdish singers could suddenly make careers at television. Um, they appeared at festivals. So there was this whole new value kind of connected to the voice. And this was abbreviated within Turkey as well, not only abroad. Yeah, right? so yeah. in Turkey, it suddenly became possible to become really audible in, in Kurdish under this sign of, you know, um, Turkey has opened up, it's become this kind of multicultural country, we can celebrate, you know, our diversity. And, um, and this, I think, made the voice and it's the Kurdish voice and its public audibility extremely desirable particularly for women, because it animated all these new kind of ideas about, wow, you can gain recognition with Kurdish and you can become, you can make money with it. You can become a star. You can appear on television. Um, but of course, um, what I also show is that it also imposed new limits on what voices were able to say and how they could sound. So suddenly these voices also had to kind of adhere to certain ideas about what Kurdish traditional music should sound like. There were these new standards. Um, or, you know, it also restricted how political these voices could be. So there were certain things you could say or sing or perform in public and others not. So there were also new limits. This audibility also came with its own limits and conditions. Um, so even though in a sense Kurdish voices are perhaps um, have never been as audible in Turkey as they are today, the question is really under what conditions does this audibility take place? What are the limits and how do these conditions shape not only what people can say, but also how voices sound and what effects voices um, have as a result? Thank you. And, and yeah, this all makes me really wondering about your sources. How did you do this, uh, this research? Yeah, so um, my research took place. So I'm an anthropologist. I did ethnographic, long-term ethnographic fieldwork, um, which means that I stayed um, one and a half years, roughly, um, in, quote-unquote, the field, which for me was... Um, mostly the town of Van, which is in the very east of Turkey, close to the Iranian border. It's a predominantly Kurdish um, middle-sized town. And I was there, um, I carried out this fieldwork um, in the years 2011 and 12, which in retrospect was very, very lucky because this was a period when there was a peace process ongoing between the Turkish government and the PKK. Uh, which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and the, the PKK has been engaged in an armed insurgency against the Turkish state since the, the early 19, uh, 1980s. And so um, for decades, um, the Kurdish regions of Turkey have experienced armed conflict, martial law, um, really severe repression and violence. And because at the time there was this peace process going on, it meant that in comparison to previous decades and years, the political situation was really relaxed um, in comparison. And this allowed me to do fieldwork that would not have been possible before or that wouldn't be possible now either because the peace process eventually collapsed in 2015 and since then um, armed warfare has basically returned to the country. So I was very lucky to be there in a period when uh, the peace process meant that I could actually do the fieldwork that I did. And it also was a period that really meant um, that Kurdish voices, you know, could 
become audible in ways that they hadn't been before because the peace process opened up all these new spaces. Um, and so, you know, it was in this context that I carried out the fieldwork and specifically where I was really based, um, where I carried out most of the actual fieldwork was at this association for Kurdish women singers, which a group of women had founded just a few weeks or months before I arrived in the field. And this was the first time such an association was founded. And I think it's very telling in a way that women actually sort of got together and founded an association, like an NGO. Um, I think it tells us a lot about these desires for raising one's voice, for becoming publicly audible on the part of Kurdish women that was quite new. And so um, doing fieldwork at this association really allowed me then to investigate, you know, what, what are the conditions under which people become audible, Kurdish women are able to raise their voices, what are the limits, and, and what are the effects of Kurdish women actually stepping out into the public and kind of, you know, raising their voices. And so um, during my fieldwork, yeah, you asked about sort of data. Um, what I mainly did was um, participant observation, which meant um, sort of a lot of hanging out <laughs> at this association um, together with the women. Um, I um, accompanied women to concerts. I helped organizing concerts. I helped um, the women that I worked with do a lot of paperwork because a lot of them, they were sort of middle-aged to elderly and a lot of them had never been to school. Um, they had grown up in very modest circumstances, often in rural circumstances. And so, um, you know, they founded this association, an NGO, but there was a lot of paperwork to be done. Also a lot of stuff on, you know, computer work um, that they often didn't know how to do. And so they would ask family, um, but also me, and I would sort of help out with these kind of things. And um, yeah, I also did obviously interviews with the women who were organized at the association. I also traveled um, quite a lot to see women in other cities, in other um, areas. Um, I spent a lot of time um, with people's families. And of course, I listened to a lot of Kurdish music together with the women. And I also recorded them um, singing a lot of their repertoires and worked on them, worked on transcribing these repertoires together with the women that I worked with. And just to make sure, I you focused on people singing or women singing, but the book is not only about singing, right? Yes, exactly. So I really use this um, focus on Kurdish women singers as an entry point into thinking about broader questions around the voice. And perhaps I should say also that the, I call them women singers, but obviously translation is always tricky. And they do sing, but a lot of the, uh, the repertoires that they perform, it's sort of in between oral literature and music in the sense that it's melodized, so it's it sounds like singing, but it's a lot of storytelling as well. So people narrate a lot of stories, personal experience, um, historical experience. So often these kind of repertoires, they're also considered to be an expression of Kurdish oral history, actually. So it's, it's not, there are also fictional stories that, that are being told, but the majority is actually people's personal experience and historical experience. And so in that sense, you, you, it's not just about kind of the music, but it really, these are repertoires where women um, recount, you know, their personal experiences, experiences that they've had in their families. A lot of, it's very heavy material. A lot of it is about a lot of suffering, violence, um, pain. Can you tell us an example of such an interview in which you, um, yeah, you heard about this personal experience or historical experiences that really struck you in a way or? Yeah, um, it's hard to pick because um, most of the interviews are in a way quite quite striking. But 
maybe I can um, talk about this very first kind of conversation that I actually had with a woman who's called Gazin, um, Dengbej Gazin. And she, um, she was the woman who actually set up this association of female women singers. And she also would become one of my key interlocutors during my time in the field. And that conversation kind of stood out because it's really what drew me into the topic. So I was kind of really struck by it. Um, and then I decided, oh, okay, I think I would like to know more about this. And this is how I actually entered into this topic. And so Gazim was also one of the few women who had actually had some success in the professional music industry. So she, um, most of the women that I worked with, they were, you know, quote unquote housewives in the sense that they, you know, they weren't working outside the house and they were just singing for themselves or they would occasionally also perform in public. But Gazine was one of the few women who had actually recorded several albums professionally and, um, you know, she had quite some success. So she was modestly known to Kurdish um, audiences. And so in that first conversation that I had with her, she told me about these enormous obstacles that she had faced during her life um, to get to where she was at that point. So at that point, she had founded this association. She had, you know, produced several albums. So on the surface looked quite successful. But then she told me about, you know, the intense kind of political repression that she had faced for singing in public in Kurdish throughout her life. So she had been arrested. She had experienced torture for publicly going out and singing in Kurdish. And she also told me about opposition from her family. Uh, because she was a woman, you know, it was considered immodest or improper that she would sing in public. So she had had really trouble with her in-laws. She had been really miserable, had again experienced quite um, terrible events. So was she captivated when she was tortured for this? Was, was this a... Yeah, so there's a longer story, but she was essentially, she was taken, she was sort of taken in into police questioning a couple of times um, and had been, um, had been tortured, um, which was partly related to um, selling Kurdish music, or, you know, Kurdish cassettes. And um, so, you know, there was all these horrible stories of kind of being repressed and punished for your voice. And even, you know, despite all of this, she told me, I had to sing, like, I, I didn't have a choice. I, I couldn't live without singing. Otherwise, if I don't, if I don't sing, she told me, I, I would have gone mad, you know? Um, and it's this intense desire to have a voice and to raise the voice that really struck me. And, um, and that I also heard reiterated again and again by other women, this thing, like, you know, I had to raise my voice. I didn't have a choice, I just, otherwise I would go mad. And this is really what kind of drew me into the research and was like, oh, wow, this is really um, striking. Um, so, yeah, this is perhaps one of the interviews that really, really stayed. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. Um, what does the story tell us? Do you have a larger analysis about it? Yeah, so I think on the one hand, I think it's very tempting to kind of read these kind of stories as um, stories about how um, we all have a universal desire to raise our voices, that this is somehow very natural, that it's very innate, that we all want to kind of tell our story. But when you look at um, anthropological research, but also historical research, we actually see that this desire to, you know, voice yourself, talk about your innermost feelings and thoughts and experiences, that this is in fact something quite modern and it's linked to a very specific idea about the self, about the interiority of the self, a specific kind of modern idea about subjecthood and that, you know, we should use our voices to express ourselves. 
and that this is good for us, that it heals us. And, um, and in my own research, so in the Kurdish context as well, I've, I've seen how this idea that, you know, the voice is there to express your inner self, your inner experiences, it's actually in some ways quite recent. Um, so what you see, for instance, when you look at traditional Kurdish music um, repertoires, oral repertoires, you see that women, but also men, but particularly women, have traditionally used their voices actually much less to give voice, to express their own feelings and emotions, but to talk much more about the suffering and the pain of others. So you see a kind of very different imagination of subjectivity and what the self is, which is much less focused on the individual self, but is much more um, a, a relational self where people use their voices not necessarily to talk about themselves, but to talk about the feelings of others. Um, and so I think this idea that, you know, the voice is to express your own self, that's quite recent. Um, and so I think this desire that people like Gazin, this woman, um, that they talk about, this desire to express the self, in some ways, there is probably something universal about it. But I think it also has to be really seen as specific political and historical context where sort of having a voice has become very central to our ideas of what it means to matter as a subject, as a person, as a political subject. You have to have a voice, right? This is what we're constantly being told. So I think this desire to, to talk about your experiences, talk about yourself, about your emotions, we have to see it in this political context where we have very specific ideas about the voice and which makes the voice this object of desire, of um, appeal, of allure. Um, and this is in a way what the book kind of tries to, um, tries to look at, how this, these new ideas about voice are changing traditional repertoires, how they're changing how people use their voices and what they do with their voices in the end. And when talking about the idea of Middle Eastern women uh, raising uh, their voices and uh, voicing their stories as acts of empowerment, um, the current situation in Iran, of course, comes to mind. And I was wondering, how do you, as a scholar specialized in women's struggle for voice, uh, how do you see these protests on, on the one hand and these governmental aims to regulate these protests on the other? Yeah, thanks a lot. I think this is um, really important, so thanks for bringing this up. Um, What's been happening in Iran um, over the recent weeks, even months now, is quite extraordinary. Um, some of it is quite frightening and scary, but I think it really deserves our attention and our support and, and solidarity in many ways. And there's, of course, lots to be said about these protests, and it's not that I'm specifically an expert on Iran, but one thing I think that becomes very clear in those protests is this specific intersection um, of oppression along the lines of both gender and ethnicity that I also see in my own work. So this, these axes of Kurdish women being at the intersection of both sort of ethnic forms of oppression and gendered. And you see that um, also in Iran. So a lot of the coverage of these protests has focused more on the gender aspect. So it's been a lot about, you know, women taking off the headscarves, um, about the, the fact that these protests are led by women that they voice uh, women's demands. But it's also crucial not to forget that Gina Amini, so the woman who, um, whose death um, or whose killing at the hands of the morality police, her death kind of sparked these protests. And she was Kurdish, of course. So she was a Kurdish woman. And this is sometimes, you know, kind of forgotten in this coverage, which is, you know, so much focused on the, the women's aspect. But I think 
in some ways, these protests can be read as a critique, both of the, the gendered forms of oppression that the Islamic Republic of Iran perpetuates and the ethnic forms of repression that it also perpetuates. So the Islamic Republic of Iran is an extremely Persian-centered um, and um, ethnic minorities like the Kurds, but also others like the Baluchis, for instance, experience a lot of um, difficulties and hardship. And so I think these, thing, these two axes come together quite uniquely in these protests. Um, and, um, and they've brought um, to light, I think, you know, a form, forms of solidarity that haven't really been there before. So they're really women-led. And so we see that men have come out to support women protesters, which is also quite unique. Often it's the other way around. And we see how the, the majority Persian publics in Iran have become aware of the unique plight of Kurds and other minorities in ways that hasn't really been the case before. So I think that makes these protests quite unique, um, these two kind of, this very intersectional nature. Um, and I think what it also kind of shows us in some ways is that, you know, we were talking about how our modern ideas about politics, about, you know, liberal ideas about um, representational politics, democracy, they've kind of elevated the voice to an object of immense importance where, you know, having a voice is really central to becoming a political subject. But that also makes it kind of, you know, makes the voice hard to tame or to kind of control. So it's like once you've called up those voices with all these ideas about democracy and representation, um, you know, you've made them, we've made the voice this crucial symbol of empowerment and agency. It makes it also very hard to control these voices, to quiet them down, to kind of steer them in a particular direction. And so ultimately the voice is probably quite an unpredictable force and people kind of, you know, very strategically use them. And I think this is also what we can see in those protests that people, you know, we have this idea about the voice as really crucial to political subjectivity, to matter. And so, you know, uh, I think what we're seeing is just the beginning in some ways, the, the voices of Kurdish women in these protests in Iran, of women in general, um, other marginalized subjects, minorities, I think these voices, they will stay with us because we've kind of created a, a context where these voices are extremely valuable. And, um, and I think they will make themselves heard, no matter the repression, no matter the obstacles. They will make sure that they matter. And so I think in some ways, these protests, even though they are really harshly repressed, something has awakened that will be very difficult to quiet down in the future. Thank you so much for this conversation, Marlene. Uh, you talked about the question of what it means to have a voice uh, in a context of protracted political violence. Uh, and this question, as you mentioned, is heightened even more uh, right now with the protests in Iran. So thank you for illuminating us in this wonderful book. Um, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.